This is the Shoot Once Podcast. I'm Frank Walker. Welcome to the Shoot Once Podcast. Uh, proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network and, and another week where we surprisingly found a lot of things to talk about even though not a single hockey game's been played. So, jumping right into it, it's been a big week for Blue Jackets news. Um, kind of the first big story out of the uh, that came across, uh, Mikhail Grigorenko, a free agent from Russia, uh, kind of signed with the Blue Jackets. Uh, apparently what happened, so the Blue Jackets made a deal with him. He agreed to a one-year contract. The problem then became that apparently it was outside of the right signing window because he is technically a UFA. He is not sending an entry-level contract like a lot of these other guys who are signing on uh, to come to to the to the NHL for the first time. So the Blue Jackets technically signed an illegal contract with him. There's no problems out of it. It's just that that he he's he said and the club has said once the right time hits they'll sign it. When that's going to be, who knows right now because of what's going on with everything. I really liked what uh, Corey Pronger wrote about him in The Athletic. Um, this sense of, uh, essentially, he's a player who started off, you know, he had a lot of potential. Then he was drafted, kind of fell out of the NHL. Uh, apparently, he's grown a lot in his time in the KHL. So, there's a real positive thought about what he's going to be. Uh, Yarmo's talked about him saying he's a, he's a forward that can play all three lines, that he's got some skill. He Or not all three lines, excuse me, all three forward positions. Has a lot of skill. Exactly the kind of player the Blue Jackets need. Um, then as far also as other team news coming out of the week, Elvis Mers Lincoln signs his two-year deal worth $8 million, uh, essentially a $4 million a year AAV. The big news for this for the Blue Jackets is over the next two years, we have the goalies signed and have it under $7 million for both goalies, which is a great deal. If you can get two goaltenders that you think are kind of that NHL-quality goaltender for under $8 million for both of them, that's real good. We'll take that. We'll take that any day of the week. So it's happy to see that deal get done. Uh, looking forward to seeing Elvis's next two years in Columbus. I'm happy to see him sticking around. Uh, we'll, and we'll talk more about Elvis later in this episode. Um, also, as far as stuff coming back, uh, there over the last couple weeks, there's been a lot of forward momentum into that happening. Uh, we talked about Dr. Fauci talking about uh, you know what it would take. If you've been looking at our YouTube channel, there's the uh, uh, video I put up about them talking about different spots for it and why I think the Midwest is a great spot if you were going to do, you know, three, four different arenas. At this point, we're seeing different reports coming out. Anything from May 15th being the day teams start coming back. Uh, We're starting to hear a lot June 1st as well as far as when teams will start coming back to start kind of working out um, and, and to try and start getting back into game shape. I think either one of those is possible. We're starting to see a lot of states talking about easing restrictions come May 1st. Now, some states have already gone ahead and done it. We'll see how that affects things. Again, everything's fluid. If in two, if in a week from now, all of a sudden you're seeing spikes all over the place in, in, in infection rates and hospitalization rates, everything might go downhill. Now, I'm seeing a lot of people talk about, oh, well, what's changed? Nothing's changed. We don't have a vaccine yet. How can we do anything? I live in a state where our state government in Ohio was very clear about what they were trying to do. Uh, at least I feel like they were clear in that what you're trying to avoid with what what you're doing when you shut everything down is you're buying a lot of time. And when they talk about flattening the curve, there's two things you can do to flatten that curve. One is to slow the rate of infection, which we've done by all this social distancing and shutting things down. The other thing you can do, the other part of flattening the curve, because remember, you're trying to keep it under the line of what of what the, the hospitalization rate is. If you can make hospital capacity higher, then that curve can get a little higher and you can be fine. And in Ohio, what's happened over the last month of all this, essentially Ohio's done some cool, some interesting stuff where they've divided the state into zones. Uh, each zone has certain hospitals that are designated as kind of where COVID patients are going to go. 
and then they've built out into convention centers and tons of places tons of additional hospital rooms so the idea being that if we do get a spike later we will be better prepared for it than we were a month ago and at this point there's been another month of fighting the disease so there's more ideas on treatments and different things like that so i mean there there are ways to get some things back to normal without vaccines now again putting people back in the stands that can get tricky but making the games essentially productions for television that that feels like something that can be on the table again i'm not an epidemiologist but some of the epidemiologists are saying things like this so that's where i think i've I've got some level of confidence to say this might work so honestly look for it here in the next week or two look i'm not week or two but in the next few weeks looks like there'll be more news coming out about that so I'm excited for where things are going. Um, and as far as this Grigorenko signing and the Mar- the Mars Lincoln signing, we're going to do some in-depth stuff on that. Uh, between the podcast here and now, we're doing more stuff on the on the, the YouTube uh, stream, which, hey, go check that out. Just just go to YouTube. The channel is Shoot Once Podcast. You'll be able to find it. We're putting video versions of the shows on there now, as well as I'm trying to do at least once a week just kind of a general video about something else. And it's they're shorter. They're not like the shows are. But they tend to be a maybe a five or ten minute thing that's a, got a little more visual involved as far as the discussion about hockey or the logistics around what's going on, something like that. Maybe sometimes it's just having fun. But but you know, I think please check it out. Um, what we've got today on the show, which I'm really excited about, uh, a guy that if you've seen him on Twitter, you've seen me maybe retweet some of his stuff, or you saw him get into some arguments with some people a week ago. Uh, when he did his 31 uh, teams in 31 days, and when he got to the Blue Jackets, he he had an interesting take on Seth Jones, which we get into. But uh, Mr. J Fresh Hockey listed on the 50 must-follows on The Athletic as far as hockey fans go. Had a great conversation with him about the Blue Jackets. So uh, relax, enjoy the show, um, and, and thanks for listening. Uh, but yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. J Fresh Hockey. All right, and now speaking to a man who has been listed as one of the uh, top 50 Twitter follows on, for hockey from The Athletic, uh, welcome to the Shoot Ones podcast, Jay Fresh. How are you doing today? Not too bad. How about you? I'm oh, doing real well. Thank you for asking. Um, so first thing I do want to ask you, I mean, who, who are you? How'd you get into this? What 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 about you said, hey, I want to start making these cool visualizations for, for stats on hockey. What, what started all that for you? Yeah, uh, I'm a graduate student in international politics in uh, in toronto really not too much of a stats background or, or you know kind of a sports media background or anything like that uh really it just came down to i am a huge hockey fan uh and increasingly into hockey analytics and uh just kind of had all these data sources newly available to me you know i'd subscribe to them on patreon patreon or what have you uh, and really just wanted kind of a way to bring them all together so really i was just making these visualizations just for myself uh, or even just for a couple of friends uh kind of on an off chance decided to start a twitter account post them online figured i'd get you know maybe a couple dozen followers and and here we are two months later and and it seems like people have kind of taken notice a little bit which is pretty fun but uh yeah, no, so not really much of a stats background for me, not like, you know, some of the guys that you see out there like Evolving Wild or Michael McCurdy who really come from that kind of hard stats modeling background. Uh, really kind of my entire role in this is just trying to find pretty ways to visualize it and, and, you know, maybe tell a story with it that can make it a little clearer for people like me who don't really know the nuts and bolts of stats innately or aren't quite savvy in that regard. That's that's really cool. Just uh, hearing so many stories like that, where it's people who weren't necessarily numbers people, but but just finding all this new information awesome. Um, I, I do have to ask you as we're starting because your avatar on Twitter is is Jack Johnson. Why, why yeah. Jack Johnson? I guess there's a connection there. You guys are well acquainted with uh, with my news. Uh, yeah, no, I mean when I started the account, you know, like I said, I wasn't expecting any traction on that whatsoever. So I just kind of needed an avatar, needed something to fill in. I know that I, I knew that I wasn't going to be kind of connecting it to, you know, my real life persona or anything like that. It was just going to be kind of a fun project. So really, I just kind of picked, you know, I think Jack Johnson's my avatar on, on a couple other hockey communities and forums and stuff like that. So kind of just went with that as a placeholder and I've kind of stuck with it now. So 
uh, I, I've kind of said to a couple of people, you know, I'm in the process of figuring out what I'm going to change it to probably to a, you know, a, a logo for, for my website coming up or something like that. But for now, you know, I, I could have picked less handsome guys than Jack Johnson. So <laughs> that, that is true. pretty happy with that. He's, he's not much of a defenseman, but you know, he's, he's a bit of a looker. <laughs> not much of a defenseman but a looker that's good yeah J- jack johnson's got a now very complicated relationship with blue jackets fans so uh i guess so yeah it, it, it turned out that you scratched him because of his play and not because of anything else <laughs> yeah not yeah what, which was not what, what i was assured when <laughs> they saw when the thing was signed for five years yeah we were, we were told there was all these nefarious diabolical reasons for doing so 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 getting from from a defenseman that you love to one that apparently you obviously hate um (laughs) (laughs) if people have been following along and out on on your twitter account you've been going kind of doing some visualizations for each team over the month of of april here and on on day nine you did the blue jackets and what's been your uh what's been uh kind of what would be deemed a hot take if it was just you know you sitting and yelling into a tv camera was that uh Jack or that Seth Jones is he's got a, a reputation as an elite defenseman, but you don't think his numbers show that. So what's what's behind your thought on on that with Seth Jones? Yeah, so Jones is a guy who I think a lot of people, you know, not even just Blue Jackets fans, but I think a lot of people around the NHL kind of are increasingly describing as kind of a top five defenseman in the NHL, or you know, like one of one of the best players in the league, and. You know, I, I've been kind of going over each team, looking at all these players and everything, and uh, he he really just doesn't live up to that reputation for me. I'm, you know, I like I, I obviously, you know, I don't watch him on a day to day basis, but I feel like if you took his statistical profile, you know, in a kind of every aspect and put a different name on it, I feel like people wouldn't be profiling him as an as an elite player. So, you know, for instance. You know, I'm, I'm kind of looking especially at his offensive play. His offensive numbers have really trailed off, uh, especially kind of since, you know, the 16, 17, 17, 18 season, which is when legitimately I feel like he could be described as an elite defenseman. And I think that for a lot of people around the NHL, or as fans-wise, like maybe not Blue Jackets fans, that's kind of what they're thinking of when they talk about Seth Jones is that kind of 2017, 2018 stretch uh, kind of right after he came to the Jackets in that Ryan Johansson trade, which, don't get me wrong, is a clear win for the Jackets in my mind. Uh, I think that that's kind of what they have in their mind. But uh, I think his offensive play in particular has really trailed off. And I, I don't think his even strength defensive numbers really support the idea that you know, I don't think they're quite enough to, to bring him to the echelon that people consider him to be. Uh, so I think he's a, I don't think he's a bad defenseman. I certainly don't think he's Jack Johnson. I would, uh, I would trade 50 Jack Johnsons for him, but uh, <laughs> I, I just think he, he maybe gets his reputation drummed up a little bit by the name recognition, by the memory of those kind of better seasons. Uh, and then also by the fact that he plays a crap load of minutes, which I think in a lot of people's mind is something that kind of directly correlates to somebody being a good defenseman or an elite defenseman is whether they play a lot of minutes. So it's really nothing personal for me with, uh, with Seth Jones, but I do think that there's a couple of places where people kind of make excuses for his poor numbers that I don't think are quite fair. And, and we could dive into more of that if you want. Well, one question I did have, cause I'm looking at the, the visualization you put up on, on Twitter there for it. As yeah. far as his weighted numbers, and you're right. I mean, there is in these numbers, there's specifically kind of a, a drop over the last three years on some things. Um, do, the numbers that you're looking at are any of them corrected for things such as uh, like zone starts and all that? Or yeah, yeah. So, so just to give some background on where the numbers are coming from. So goals above replacement. Well, so in this case, it's using expected goals above replacement and expected wins above replacement, which is uh, a, a model created by. Uh, evolving wild who are kind of two you know they're twins they're statistical analysts uh uh who are who come from minnesota uh and the one of the main points of that model is to uh create a number that adjusts for kind of all of those contextual issues that a lot of people tend to have with advanced stats so it does adjust for zone starts it adjusts for teammates uh, it adjusts for you know playing at home playing on the road uh competition so that's kind of a big thing that people will usually glom onto is kind of saying like, oh, well, this defenseman's numbers are actually not so great because he plays against the team's best players. But kind of the whole point of the model is that it addresses if your player plays against the team's top players. Uh, so, yeah, so it, it, it is adjusted for those things. Uh, and obviously, you know, 
no statistical model is going to capture absolutely everything. But I think that the the results are decisive enough that that they lead me to a pretty strong conclusion that at least his offensive game has has taken quite a bit of a hit in the past couple of years. And I think that's supported by other models that people have made. Uh, so, I mean, you know, you've, you've said that, you know, some people talk about him as a top five player in the league and you're not sure about that. It, from when you've been looking at the whole league, do you still see him as a, a top pair defenseman? I mean, is that, that's still, he's still in that category in, in your mind of it, correct? Or, or no? Uh, I, I would say I think that he is he's certainly not going to hurt a top pair. Uh, again, this feels very weird to say about a guy with the kind of the pedigree of Seth Jones. Uh, it kind of makes me feel like I'm like kind of playing God here, uh, assigning <laughs> him a role that he would be good for. I think right now, based on how he profiles over the past three years, I see him as a clearly a top four defenseman, uh, clearly a solid defensive player, uh, an above average defense uh, player at even strength uh, at defense. Uh, but I think just, again, because he plays those kind of escalated minutes, I think it's kind of tough to play as an exact role that I would give him. I think, again, one thing that people kind of often misunderstand about analytics is that they're not necessarily a measure of a player's ability, but they're just a player's performance. And that's something that's kind of come up in a couple arguments lately uh, is that, you know, to say that Seth Jones's play lives up to, or profiles more as kind of top four caliber play doesn't mean necessarily that Seth Jones, his innate ability or talent is that of a only a top four defenseman uh, or that he, you know, I mean, he's only what, 25 years old. He's going to be 26 years old next year. I mean, you know, this is a guy who has, you know, it's very possible that he hasn't seen his best years yet. Um, But uh, again, I think that, you know, we as, people who are trying to analyze hockey through a statistical lens, you know, we can only really account for what's in front of us uh, and, and the this, this stats that we have and the models that are available. And from, from that perspective, I think that it's, it, it would be difficult and straining credulity to kind of look at the profile that Seth Jones has put out on there, there on the ice from a, from a statistical perspective and conclude that he is kind of the top end top pairing or even number one defenseman that he's said to be. Okay. No, I, I, I can respect that, that view of it because you're right. You're, just a, you're evaluating what you've seen as far as what the numbers are telling us over a long period of time. Yeah. And, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, no, and, and I guess just kind of a, a couple more things because, you know, I've been, you know, part of kind of going through team by team here is that I've kind of interacted with a lot of people from different fan bases, including the Blue Jackets uh, fans. And I think, you know, I, I kind of posted – this uh, this thread under uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets subreddit just kind of out of curiosity uh, to see how it would be received and and as I expected I got quite a bit of hostility for the Jones take which I think <laughs> led led me and and even actually from some kind of more mainstream parts of of Blue Jackets Twitter like I think that their their athletic reporter kind of quote tweeted this and said you know here are the limits of of analytics you know because his you know from the eye test he looks like a top defenseman and you know there were some kind of comments about micro stats and stuff like that. So I kind of dug a little bit more into it because I, I do agree that, you know, when I'm kind of putting these visualizations out there that are kind of based on wins above replacement or goals above replacement, that's kind of an impressionistic, you know, I'm kind of trying to put things out there so you can kind of quickly have some kind of snapshot of the general quality of a player's impact. Uh, but I do think that there's something worthwhile when there's a player whose reputation is so at odds with what the analytical profile is to kind of dig a little bit deeper and try to dissect things a little bit more. So I kind of went into a couple of the counterpoints that people brought up about Jones. Uh, the first one is kind of the whole microstats thing. So for people who might not be aware, microstats are kind of an increasingly popular thing in the analytics community where people will kind of manually track events and data that aren't tracked by the NHL and so that would be things like you know zone exits zone entries transition play uh you know passing to a shot stuff like that you know stuff that kind of creates a bit of a clearer picture of what's going on in the ice and it was pointed out to me that Seth Jones does fare quite well by these microstats and I think that was kind of a big rebuttal that I was getting was that you know Jones is you know his numbers his shot impacts stuff like that might not be so great but he's still an elite transition player and so I kind of dug into that a little bit And what I found was that while Jones does grade out pretty well in a lot of those metrics, especially in transition play and stuff like that, I found that 
the entire uh, Blue Jackets top four also does pretty well in that regard. You know, <laughs> if you if you look at the kind of visualizations that people have made of just kind of you know carrying in with the puck carries per sixty stuff like that, you know, you're going to see Ryan Murray and Zach Wierenski right there with them, and in some cases Dean Kukin. Kukin? I don't think Dean Kukin. Kukin. Who, yeah, I, I, people who, say it both ways. So who I who I mean clearly is pretty underrated if I don't even know how to pronounce his name. But uh, so that was a big one for me was just kind of, you know, a bit of a corrective on the idea that you can just say, well, he's an elite transition player and kind of brush that away. Because I think clearly there's something in the way that John Tortorella is managing his defense and the way that he prefers for them to play on the puck that's kind of elevating Jones's numbers in that category Mm -hmm. and maybe kind of making him look good. Uh, There was another one, which is kind of the Zach Wierenski thing. Like a lot of people have said, you know, uh, Jones or you know Jones kind of muddles along so that Wierenski can fly uh, which also wasn't quite borne out by the numbers where kind of Jones had pretty similar numbers with and with with and with sorry with or without Wierenski mm-hmm. from an aggregate standpoint so kind of when Jones is playing with Wierenski uh, he's you know the team is obviously has like a little bit more offense but it also has a little worse defense uh, when he's playing without Wierenski his offense takes a big hit, but his defense is a little bit better. So uh, really no kind of big swing there that would taint the results of these models uh, significantly. And then kind of the last one, and I think the most interesting one, the one that I think is worth getting into and will probably lead to, if you want to talk about goalies later on, uh, is what the hell happened to the Jackets after Jones got hurt. Because, you know, clearly something happened to the Jackets because we were talking about Tortorella is running away with the... uh, coach of the year award and then suddenly the team completely fell apart halfway through february yeah but but the uh so i dug into that too because that seemed like a pretty pretty good rebuttal is you know if jones is so expendable or so mediocre average or whatever then why the hell did the blue jackets completely (laughs) collapse after that so i dug into uh a couple of the numbers with that as far as their team defense numbers uh as well as their goaltending and and what i found was a pretty clear and pretty dramatic drop off in the uh, the Blue Jackets goaltending performance after he got hurt, but in a way that is not accounted for by or sorry that 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 does not follow that it was a huge drop in team defense quality. So, like for example, like before Jones got hurt, the Jackets were the third best defensive team in the NHL in terms of expected goals against, which is, I think, right now the best measure that we have of team defense because it measures the quantity and quality of chances that a team is giving up. So for the lion's share of the season, the Jackets were the third best defensive team in the league. In just the time that Jones was hurt, they were the eighth best defensive team in the league. So it was a little bit of a drop-off, as you might expect from losing a player who's who's a strong defensive player like Seth Jones is but you know only to the tune of kind of 0.1 expected goals against per game which is not too significant uh at the same time uh before Jones got hurt the Jackets had the best five on five goaltending in the NHL which is not what I was would have expected to uh, to say (laughs) about Jackets goaltending if you asked me in October but nonetheless so they were getting ridiculous goaltending for the first part of the season uh after he got hurt uh, they got the 28th best goaltending in the NHL. So if you dig into, you know, obviously save percentage is pretty flawed because it doesn't account for quality. So if you, again, dive into that, uh, going specifically for, uh, for Elvis, uh, his expected save percentage based on the quality and quantity of shots he was facing was the same before and after Jones's injury. The only difference is that before Jones's injury, he uh, had a 931 five on five save percentage. After Jones's injury, he had a 902 save percentage. So the the question that I would have, and because I think it's a it's a fair point for people to say, well, come on, is it that much of a you know how much of a coincidence can it be that the goalie completely fell off a cliff right after Jones got hurt? But I mean, again, I can only really account for the numbers that I have in front of me. And those numbers suggest that the team defense really did not take much of a hit as far as the kind of quality of shots that they allowed after Jones got hurt. And it was the goaltending that really fell off a cliff. So, I mean, my conclusion from that would just be that Elvis Merzlikens is not the best goalie in the NHL. As I know that's very tough to hear, but (laughs) that Merzlikens maybe just kind of fell to earth at a pretty predictable time that he would fall to earth 
uh, and it just so happened to align with with Seth Jones's injury. So, you know, that's kind of my comprehensive deep dive on on kind of why I think that some of those indicators that might lead people to you know, o- overstate, in my opinion, the impact that Seth Jones had on the Blue Jackets' success this year, you know, and the the impact that the lack of Seth Jones had on the Blue Jackets' lack of success later on, uh, it might be a little overstated. But I'd, I'd be interested to hear kind of what what you'd have to, to disagree with me on that. Well, so with – I mean, my thought is probably similar to – and I think it was probably Allison Lucan that was the person that was responding to you with the transition yeah, metrics. For sure. And there is a – and again, I'm not nearly as deep into the numbers as, as a lot of these things are. So it, it's going to be from watching games when I've seen a lot of situations of sure. Seth Jones seems to create a lot around him. Um, I mean, not necessarily direct assists, but it's a lot of that transition stuff. And it's funny that you mentioned the whole, uh, you know, that it might be how John Tortorella coaches him. Because uh, there was a story that I think Allison Lucan was the one who wrote it in The Athletic about how the Jackets have an internal metric um, that was developed by one of the coaches mm-hmm. that essentially scores uh, players transitioning the puck, getting it into zones, out of zones, all of that kind of stuff. That's interesting. And okay, that it's, that. yeah. And that when they score that metric, they said, you know, you know, Seth Jones normally is scoring at the top of it, that it's, it's that kind of thing. So it, there's, there's those things that a lot of blue jackets fans see. Um, it, it is interesting on our team to have, one offense, one defenseman who has a high, uh, you know, a high, a high uh, reputation like Seth Jones, who doesn't score as much as another re- defenseman who has a, a high reputation, but not as high as Jones in Zach Warinsky, who scores a lot of goals, especially for a defenseman. Um, yeah. I think he led the league in goals by a defenseman when, when everything came to a pause. So it, I mean, on, on my side, it is, when you see Seth Jones play, there's a lot of, and, and maybe there's some of this is confirmation bias that I have in my head. Oh, he's a great defenseman. So when I see him do something great, I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what we want. Um, but I mean, I can see some of your points in this and that there are times where his offensive production isn't, I could see where that would be what's keeping him out of people's mind, out of your mind and being that, that top tier because he doesn't produce as much offensively as, as obviously, you know, some of the other top defensemen like, like John Carlson or whatnot. Um, yeah, well, I mean, like just to, to clarify a bit on that, I think that, you know, when I'm talking about kind of even strength offense, what I'm thinking isn't necessarily from a production standpoint. Like I'm, I would be more saying as far as his ability to, you know, when I say driving offense, I mean kind of being a guy who when he's on the ice, the Jackets are getting more offensive opportunities. So not, not necessarily that those are translating into points directly, uh, but more that he is a guy who, when he's on the ice, uh, the Jackets are getting you know, better scoring chances and stuff like that. Well, uh, the, the one other, I guess, rebuttal I might make is the... And, and I, I understand we're trying, you know, that you're saying this, this corrects for a lot of you know, teammate play and all that kind of stuff. The Jackets this year have not been a very good team offensively, just in general. So his number coming down a lot doesn't surprise me. Now, if his number is coming down when other players hasn't, I, I didn't see as, you know, this with every other player or not because I, I didn't I see your visualizations on it. But is that, I mean, is that something you were seeing where like a, a Ryan Murray or Zach Rinsky, their numbers for, for these are, stay, are, are going down as to overtime as well? Or are they staying medium or what what were you seeing with them yeah so uh Wierenski's even strength offense numbers are actually uh very solid like he's he ranked in the 93rd percentile among defensemen in 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 even strength offensive goals above replacement uh so he's kind of right at the top there uh Ryan Murray again here I can I can bring that up I don't have to talk out of my ass yeah so Ryan Murray is a guy who who is consistently kind of in that lower end offensively so he's not that's not really something where you'd see a trans uh, a kind of trend line going down there. I will say Ryan Murray had a really a defensive season God damn I'm just looking at his numbers right now and he was in the he was in the ninety ninth percentile among uh, defensemen from a defensive uh even strength standpoint so that's that's something to hang your hat on for sure i mean I, I guess that's something where I'd say you know I think ryan miller Ryan Murray deserves quite a bit of credit that he doesn't get 
you know, because I think a lot of fans around the league are kind of more attracted to the big names like Seth Jones. Uh, Yeah, no, I, 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 again, I I think that, I guess we got it. We kind of talked a little about, about the transition plan, the eye test thing. Uh, I, I think the thing for me, especially kind of when microstats like that come up is that when, when the microstats are good and the, the overall kind of impacts are bad, either offensively in, in Jones's case or, you know, defensively in the case of some other players who we might talk about. Uh, what that tells me is that there's something that's not captured by them and that's not kind of captured by the eye test. So when, when I say not captured by the eye test, I just mean like the kind of thing that isn't super noticeable. Like this right. is the kind of, you know, like we might be seeing, you know, Seth Jones make these really nice transition passes, but, you know, maybe there are decisions that he's making when he's, his team has the puck in the offensive zone that aren't getting the job done, but that you might just not notice as much. Uh, in the case of defense, uh, you know, you might have a player who's winning a lot of board battles or stripping pucks or doing things like that. But when it comes to their positioning, uh, you know, maybe they're not in the exact right place. Maybe their stick isn't in the right lane. You know, maybe there's something that they're doing that, you know, even the most kind of seasoned hockey mind isn't going to be able to pick up over an 82 game sample, uh, which is I think where kind of the analytics can step in. And I think that when you lean too heavily on the microstats, I think some people are kind of tempted to do that because in a lot of cases, the microstats reflect the eye test a lot more clearly than the, you know, the, what we call like the underlying numbers do because what microstats are doing is they're measuring events. Like they're counting events that happen on the ice and our eyes are drawn to events. We notice when Seth Jones makes good transition plays. We notice when Alex Barkov strips puck away, pucks away from players, but we don't notice are things that don't happen uh, or things that would happen, but don't happen because a player isn't in the right place or doesn't quite make the right decision uh, over an 82 game sample. So I, I, I would say, I, I think that points to Seth Jones, having quite a bit of talent. I think he clearly has shown that he has the ability to be a top defenseman. Uh, uh, but I think that cl- there's clearly something going on that, you know, maybe no one's eye test is fine tuned enough or, you know, they're, they're focused enough on looking exactly at Seth Jones and ignoring absolutely everything else that's happening on the ice to kind of figure out that might be the thing that's causing that disconnect between, you know, the eye test and the microstats on one side and these kind of aggregate underlying numbers on the other side. Yeah. Um, I think it's very interesting. I'm, I'm, it's a shame everything went on pause. Cause I just, I mean, for obviously a thousand reasons, but also it, I would love to start seeing when we get these tracking stats on, on players and, and how much that becomes public, who knows, but just the, you know, just to see where that comes yeah. out on Seth Jones here in the future and, and what he is. Cause it, I mean, it, it, it wouldn't be the first time in history that player people overrate a player on, on reputation if we then find out later and eh, maybe it wasn't as good as we thought, but yeah. Um, I, I mean, the, the thing about Jones, you know, at the very least is that, you know, he's making what 5.4 million bucks for the next two years after this year. Like, it's not like yeah. this is a guy who they're paying, you know, $12 million to who doesn't have like the prettiest underlying numbers. Like, you know, Seth Jones, even if, you know, even if I'm right, even if I, you know, I say that Seth Jones is just an okay you know, top four defenseman who's, who's not, you know, as, as outstanding as his reputation says. I mean, you know, even in that kind of pessimistic assumption, he's still only getting overpaid by, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is yeah. pretty negligible in the grand scheme of things, especially considering how good some of the Jackets cheaper players are. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't begrudge Jackets fans from <laughs> Seth Jones or being happy with him. <laughs> so, nothing personal against him or, uh, or any of you guys either. Oh no, no! I I never take any of that. I, I anybody who takes this stuff personally or like, oh, you hate my team? That's crazy. You, people just look at the numbers, they come to their conclusions. That's where it is. It's no big deal. Um, okay. Now jumping into what's probably going to be the more uh, a big question for jackets for the jackets over the next year or two. If yeah. you were looking today, at, because of the numbers you've looked at, between them choosing between Elvis Mers Lincoln's and Mers Lincoln's and and Jonas Corposalo, which one of those two goalies would you be leaning towards based on based on numbers based on what you've you've seen on those i'm I'm going Elvis all the way I, I think that there's very little doubt in my mind that he's that he's the way to go 
and and that's not to say that I you know again like I said before I, I don't think he's the best goalie in the league I don't think he you necessarily can even count on him to be you know let's say an average to above average starter going forward because you know I I really you know again this is not something that I necessarily believed until I kind of dove into goalie numbers and goalie performance a little bit more deeply but I mean goaltending in the NHL is an absolute crapshoot like from year to year uh, you know and I I mean god you're a you're a blue jackets fan I don't need to tell you uh you know you've you've watched Bobrovsky for long enough that you know that you're you know like Bobrovsky was the best goalie in the league for like two straight years he had another Vesna on top of that and then he goes to Florida and completely crafts the bed and then even yeah. last year with the jackets he wasn't necessarily doing too well until the playoffs there so yeah. I mean when it when it comes down to it with goaltending you're always gambling and the best bet for me is to gamble on a horse that at least has done something good before uh, and who isn't going to cost you too much. And I think with Corpus Allo, you know, I, I think for a long time, just as an outsider fan and kind of somebody who's kind of been kind of keyed into these conversations and stuff like that, I think Corpus Allo for a long time had the kind of built up reputation as kind of the guy who's just waiting to take that next step and become a great starter in the NHL. I think you could talk to him or talk about him in kind of that same conversation as a UC Saros type, uh, you know, maybe in, even in like the Matt Murray or Tristan Jari conversation as far as these guys who are backups now. But, you know, oh, God, you just wait when they're 25, 26. They're going to be, you know, the new guard of elite goaltenders. And I mean, if you just look at his his stats, I think it was the other way around. I mean, his he stepped in in 15, 16. You know, he played 31 games there and he was spectacular. You know, the numbers back that up. 16-17, he had a bit of a more sideline role. He only played 14 games, but he was still, you know, doing doing just fine, you know, behind a pretty crummy Jackets defense. Uh, but, I mean, the past three years of kind of being a consistent backup, uh, and then this season, obviously, I think he ended up playing more games than Elvis. Uh, it, the numbers are, are pretty poor. You know, they, they rank pretty low. I think as the Jackets have become a better defensive team, and especially they were obviously a great defensive team this year, uh, I think he's he's kind of in that category of goalies who underperform relative to the quality of shots they face, and he's done so cons- uh, consistently. I mean, if you look back through, you know, just going from from three years ago to now, he, in a backup role, like playing less than 82 games, he uh, he allowed uh, eight goals above expected, ten goals above expected, and then nine goals above expected uh, this year. So I think that creates a pretty clear pattern of performance from his. Uh, from his uh, perspective that would lead me to believe that there really isn't much of a ceiling there uh, or if it is one it's not one that's worth taking a gamble on so even if Elvis is a wild card because you know is he going to be the elite goalie that he was for a stretch there last year who knows is he going to be the crappy goalie that he was you know after February (laughs) maybe who knows but I would at least rather take my shot on somebody who at least in aggregate profiles pretty well uh, and who probably would have a cheaper price tag and maybe a little bit of a less of a reputation. And, you know, if I was the Jackets, what I really would be looking at is looking at a guy like Yaroslav Halak or, you know, maybe trading for a guy who's kind of in a backup role and who can play kind of that 1B role, uh, kind of more of a veteran presence, somebody who has a pretty clear track record of of doing well behind strong defenses like the Jackets have and uh, just kind of roll with it from there rather than, you know, continuing on kind of a, an Elvis Eunice uh, roller coaster ride of seeing who's going to be the young guy <laughs> who grabs the top spot. Uh, so yeah, that, that's my perspective. Again, this is kind of a more of a stats based perspective. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I will admit I watched Elvis uh, a couple times when he played the Penguins. Uh, I was very fond of him when the Penguins destroyed the, uh, the jackets in his first <laughs> uh, NHL game, but I, I don't quite, uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. No, Elvis I, would be my preference. Yeah, I, it, Elvis has been has been he's the, up, up until he was a roller coaster there for a long time, uh, and I mean yeah. mostly just down in the early part of the season. Seems like every time he got a chance, he wasn't there, and and then it all turned around for him in a game on New Year's Eve when he played the Panthers, and he just looked great. And it was a night when the Jackets' defense, that's normally great, didn't seem to want to do anything and they left him out to dry a few times and he he looked amazing that night and since then he looked really good after that and, and he seems to be a goaltender that kind of wants that confidence of being in the in the number one role as much as he can so 
no, I get your yeah. point there. As, as a Blue Jackets fan, uh, when the Bobrovsky thing was happening, it, it was the kind of thing where I was saying, I'm fine with keeping Bobrovsky, but not at the dollar. He wanted Carey Price money, and I said, not, not for that, though, because it's a goaltender. Yeah. Who knows what happens with a goaltender? So Yeah, no, and for, for, for me, no goalie is worth the Carey Price no. number. You, I goalies... Like I, I if if you had to if you had me up against a wall and said that I had to pay a goalie that number just kind of at any point in the past twenty years, you know maybe for Lungfist coming out of the '06 lockout is all that I would be able to confidently tell you that I'd pay that contract. But I mean honestly, like the Jackets and I think the Penguins are kind of in a similar situation in terms of I think we both have two young goalies who kind of split the starts and are trying to establish themselves. Uh, and who probably aren't going to come in at a super excessive number. Uh, and I think the Jackets actually might be in a stronger position than that because neither of your goalies have a, you know, two Stanley Cup rings from five yeah. years ago that they can, you know, smack on the negotiating table and demand a little bit more money. Yeah. But uh, honestly, you know, like the Jackets obviously prefer to have a, a, you know, consistent top goalie, but I mean, that really doesn't exist too much anymore in, in today's NHL. And the best you can really hope for is to have a guy who has a decently high ceiling who you don't have to pay too much. And, you know, like what kind of dollar value or do, would you say that you'd be projecting for a guy like Elvis or, or even Corpus Well, so they, they've re-signed Jonas or Jonas recently to a two year deal and it was right at, um, Oh, true, what was it? Right. Two and a half or something like that. Yes. It wasn't. It wasn't super high, and the the idea is that they will probably get Elvis somewhere right, right around the same time. Um, gotcha. From what from what All we're right. seeing, so, it, so disregard disregard Yaroslav Halak. Yaroslav Halak <laughs> can go somewhere else. Well, what it seems like the team wants to do is they want to sign them both kind of to similar deals in that range, and then ha- buy themselves another year or two to make to decide if they want to do a long term commitment right. to one or the other. Um, Jonas two point okay, eight that's, for that's the, the best, next two years. Best scenario. Yeah, yeah. They, well, they got right. uh, so Elvis, you know again. That's... Elvis is an RFA this season, so they'll probably try and do right. something similar two years for under three, and that's then right. and then make a long term commitment to one or the other, depending on what they see over the next two years. Or the Blue Jackets actually have two or three goaltenders coming up through the pipeline who are also probably NHL, uh, not ready yet, but could be in the next right. year or two. So they may end up saying, okay, bye to both of them and getting two more cheap goaltenders to come up. Who knows? But right. See, like, honestly, in, in the year 2020 in the NHL, I feel like that's maybe the best situation you could be in. You know, what, what I have paid Corpus Allo just based on his stats, 2.8 million and said, I want you on my team for the next two years. Maybe not, but I, you know, honestly, if you can have your goaltending cost under 6 million bucks or around 6 million bucks, and you have kind of those two lottery tickets as far as guys who maybe could perform, then I'd say you're in a pretty good spot. So yeah, yeah. Elvis, you know, for however many years, if he's under three mil or 3.5 mil or, or what have you, I think the Jackets, in my mind, could be pretty happy with that. And I would I would like to live in a world where the Penguins could get Matt Murray and Tristan Jari locked up at that, but I think it's going to be a much more complicated summer for the Pens in that regard. Yeah, I think, I think Murray's going to be... I think Murray's going to walk in the door starting at four or five. I think that's what he's going to ask for. Um, and I think those cups yeah, are what's going to inflate yeah. his number past what he's actually worth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll see. I, I, I wonder, yeah. I wonder how the loyalty factor will play into that. I mean, he was so bad this year, you know, I, I, <laughs> it was kind of a best case scenario as far as when the bad year kind of popped up as far as contract negotiations yeah. in terms of making sure they didn't, they didn't extend him at a big number, but yeah, no, we'll see. I mean, everything's obviously in weird stasis right now. Yeah, you know? like, uh, who's yeah. Gonna, who, who's going to start in the playoffs? Like all that, all those kind of questions are kind of left unanswered. Whereas, obviously, if things were going on as normal, we would know the answer right now. But yeah, we have some clarity on some things. Um, yeah, but, yeah, goalies really become. I don't. I don't know if you follow football at all, but it's become similar to what running back was in the NFL, where people used to sign running backs to huge deals and have you know like a franchise running back. And now most teams have bought into this whole, eh, you draft a good running back, you have them for three or four years, you don't make a big commitment because they're just, with running backs, it's that they tend to wear down quickly. With goalies, it's just that they're, you know, they're a coin toss. On a given night, you might have somebody who's going to win the game for you. You might have somebody who's going to let in a 40, you know, something from the blue line. You don't know what you're going to get some nights. 
Yeah. So I, I mean, goaltending is the massive wild card just in hockey in general. And it's kind of every time that I dive a little bit more deeply into goalie analytics and stuff, it really just gives me, it gives me the sense that, you know, God, like everything is just so variable. I mean, you know, yeah. like you said, night to night, like night to night is one thing, but just season to season. I mean, like you look at, you know, how we talk about kind of goaltenders as being elite and I've, I've just stopped. Like I am no longer <laughs> saying that goalies that so-and-so goalie is elite. I don't care how good he is this season. You know, I don't care, you know, if he's Sergei Bobrovsky leading the league for two straight years. I don't care if he's Connor Hellebuck, you know, putting together a good hard trophy case because like just the, with very, very, very few exceptions, just the ability of goalies to just be absolutely spectacular one year and then just completely fall off the face of the earth and yeah. cost their teams win after win after win the next year is just insane. And I, I think that there's a, a, a bit of a, you know, you said that there's a bit of an attitude change going on in the, in the NFL around running backs. And I've heard a lot of people say that I'm not too big a football guy myself, but I think one of kind of the interesting contradictions or, you know, maybe not contradictions, but I guess tensions between, the more kind of analytical perspective and the more traditional perspective around goalies is that I think it's pretty clear from what we've heard from players is that they prefer to have kind of a stable goalie that they can play in front of, like a goalie that they get to know and they get to trust and they, you know, play in front of, like they, they want to have it decided who the starting goalie is. And what the numbers tell us is, you know, that's not necessarily the way that you should go. Like you should not necessarily have, you know, your goalie locked up long-term and, you know, have them at, at a big number and it might be more opportunistic to, you know, try doing like the, the goalie tandem or, you know, like what the Islanders have been doing the past couple of years or stuff like that, where if a goalie's hot, you can ride him. If he's not, you can sub somebody else in or, or, you know, and on these short-term deals where you can kind of discard them and pick up new goalies and stuff like that. But I feel like players are pretty hostile to that idea, just in terms of the way that they like to play and, and get comfortable in front of a goalie. So I think right. that'll be something interesting to watch as kind of analytics become more mainstream and, you know, maybe God willing, people start to clue in a little bit more about how goalies actually perform from year to year and start to rethink, I think, some of their assumptions about, you know, whether so-and-so goalie is actually a leader, whether it's just all reputation. All right. So jumping into, and I'm guessing already which player you're going to say on this, if there was a player about the, on the Blue Jackets that you said, hey, this is who I want people to pay attention to, this guy's good and I'm excited about, about, you know, watching him play or excited about what he's going to do. Who would that be? Yeah. See, this is where I get all the goodwill back after the, uh, trap. yeah, I, 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 you know, you guessed right. You know, I mean, Oliver Bjorkstrand is just nuts. Like I, you know, (laughs) he's a guy who I kind of remember as being a pretty big name as far as like a prospect goes a couple of years ago. I think his perception of him kind of, fell a little bit which is you know maybe a little bit unfair because his he's always been a guy who's had pretty good underlying numbers especially kind of early on like when he was kind of 20 and 21 he was playing pretty small roles but his offensive numbers especially were very impressive but I think that that a thing about him that's there's two things that impressed me about him the first one is that his defense has just gotten better and better and better in a way that you don't actually often see with forwards like I think people kind of have this perception surrounding forwards and I think especially kind of high pedigree forwards that their defense is just going to kind of improve at a linear rate as they get older, because obviously, you know, it's a lot of it is mythologizing. A lot of it is, you know, Oh, you get this kid from the CHL. He doesn't know how to play defense. And then, you know, you get him (laughs) with a good coach like John Tortorella and, you know, he's going to teach him how to play D and how to back check and all that stuff. Uh, which doesn't actually usually end up happening. What usually happens is if you're a skilled offensive player, you're just going to kind of keep playing offense and neglect defense until later on you're not good enough offensively and you kind of have to start tidying it up. But in the case of Bjorkstrand, he's just gotten better at defense every year. And and to the point now where, you know, I I would rate him as as maybe a top five defensive player in the league. You know, like right now, like his as his numbers profile in terms of goals, uh, goals above replacement and even strength defense, he was 99, 99th percentile in the NHL. You know, I think that if we were living in a world where, uh, you know, second line wingers are in the Selkie conversation, you know, he'd be a guy who I'd have <laughs> as a big candidate for that. And, and on that note, I think another impressive thing about him is that we talk a lot about these kind of analytical darling players who, you know, we say, oh, like when they get, you know, they're playing on the fourth line, they're playing on the third line. But like, you know, this guy's actually like a superstar. And when he plays on the top line, like he's going to do great and he's going to excel. 
and I think that there are a couple of cases where that hasn't quite translated where people have kind of made themselves look a little bit foolish in retrospect by building up players who were, you know, playing smaller roles. But I think when they kind of got that bigger chance, they weren't quite ready for prime time. But the thing about Bjorkstrand is that he's only gotten better as he's yeah. gone up the lineup. And oh, I yeah. think now he's finally in a position where he's, you know, a really trusted player on that team. And I think he's gotten more opportunities than obviously with, with Panarin being gone. I'm sure that that opens up a little bit more ice time on the wing. But like he's a guy who was clearly given an opportunity this year and just ran away with it and, and became a caliber of player that I don't think that I would have expected him to have in his, you know, in his ability. So he's, he's a guy who's super impressive to me and I think has gone quite a long way towards solidifying the, especially the team defense of the Blue Jackets forwards uh, in, in such a way that I think a lot of people probably weren't expecting going into the season. Yeah, and and I mean, you you talk about that February swoon where the Blue Jackets started not playing as well. If my memory serves me right, I mean, after Seth Jones went down, it wasn't long after that that Bjorkstrand essentially had almost the same injury. Uh, He went down with a broken ankle. And so losing both those players on defense at once, I mean, like you said, it just dropped them from like third to eighth. But if at the same time your goaltending doesn't hold up as well, losing that can be a big deal especially with Bjorkstrand yeah. being, I mean, Bjorkstrand, from what I'm seeing, I mean, what, what do you think of his offense abilities? He said he's, you know, almost Selkie level in, in some ways, but when you're looking at him offensively. I mean, they're, yeah, they're fantastic. I mean, he's, you know, like I said, he was 99th percentile defense. He was a 90, 95th percentile forward this year. Yeah. he, Which is pretty nuts in terms of kind of what you would project for him. I mean, he, like I, I, I said in, in my post, and I, you know, I, I stick with it that I think he, might be the most underrated player in the NHL as, as far as just people kind of not really talking about him at all. You don't hear about him. You definitely don't hear about his defensive play, but I feel like he's not one of those guys who really gets a lot of press or, or, you know, ink spilled about him over the course of the season when clearly that's something that he deserves. Yeah. I, he's in my estimation. I mean, in previous years, it's always been kind of that, Oh, you can kind of see him come in. You can see the potential. You can see this happening. And then this year, in my mind, he's solid. He's solid. Sol- he is very solid in the, in that conversation of this is one of the guys you're kind of building around at this point. He's, he's yeah. one of those core players on this team. Um, and I mean, like one of the, you know, one of the fun things about those kinds of players is when it comes to, you know, the time to sign the contracts and everything, you know, they're not exactly making a giant pile of money. Like, you know, he's, he has what one year left at 2.5, I think, which is uh, one of the you know bigger steals in the NHL in terms of the value he's given the Jackets on that deal. But unless he goes and scores 35 goals next year, I can't really envision a situation where he's going to be making you know more than six million bucks or or something like that. So yep, you know I'd say the Jackets are in a pretty good position as far as you know the kind of discount forward group that they're able to put out right now. Yeah, one year at 2.5, then he's an RFA, so you can try and try and get a big deal on on him there if you want as far as to try and get him locked up long term which I, I think they would at this point um all right and, and jumping around to some things we're hearing around the league now kind of getting off the blue jackets a little bit yeah um i mean the big free agent that's going to be this season is going to be taylor hall is that a player that because you know that as players get older sometimes people say oh to make sure you don't overpay for them right is that the kind of player that you think a team should go out and be willing to pay top dollar for? Or do you think, eh, maybe he's going to be coming down? What's, what's your views on him? Are there, uh, are there Jackets fans who are, who are looking at him to fill the, fill the Panarin gap, possibly? Uh, there's discussion that if you could make a run at him, and, and right. where Blue Jackets fans get an idea on this being possible. Because we, we get that we're Columbus, so we normally don't make big free agent signings. Right. But at this point, it looks like, you're, it looks like Columbus is going to have as much cap space, if not more, than most teams especially in that they're in a situation of being a team that's consistently been in the playoffs this year we'll see how things go because this year's nuts but uh, you know if you could get that big kind of player would that take you over the top so that's that's where people are thinking it but what what would be your view on it so i think whenever you go after kind of any big player in free agency i mean you know not even necessarily like the huge names like taylor hall would be kind of like a top five ufa in the past 10 or 15 years as far as 
players who are available. Like we're talking about a guy who, in terms of kind of his reputation and career pedigree, is up there with Tavares, and and you know, obviously, you know, we'll see if Petrangelo is coming up this uh, this off season. Uh, and that's always a risk. It's always a risk, obviously, to throw around ten million bucks in free agency, as the Panthers found out this season. Uh, but it can also pay off, which is, I think, you know, not to twist the knife too much, but you know, the Rangers obviously got a heart trophy caliber season out of Artemi Panarin, you know, way more than they than they paid, despite the fact that it was a huge salary. But I think that Taylor Hall might be the biggest risk that I have ever seen as far as if you're paying for a free agent. Because a lot of the time with these big guys who are up for a lot of money, it's a very clear, you know, don't do this. Like his his underlying numbers are really not that good. You know, you don't want to do it. He's always been overrated, blah, blah, blah. But with Taylor Hall, it is way more complicated because as recently as a season ago, and especially two seasons ago, he was legitimately one of the best players in the league and especially one of the best left wings. Like, you know, even last season, I would probably rank him only behind Mark Stone and maybe Panarin in terms of, of the top left or wingers in the NHL. Uh, uh, you know, obviously Kucherov is also in that conversation, but uh this season, he just, he really sucked. Like, there's no sure going in. You know, he sucked in New Jersey. He sucked in Arizona. He, everyone was expecting him to kind of put it together in, in the desert after he, after he left there, and it just didn't happen. And, you know, now you look at his, at his profile, you know, if you kind of timeline his performance throughout his career, you know, it really kind of looks like a decline. And obviously, you know, for me at least, this is why, I always kind of emphasize that analytics are about charting performance and not ability. Because, you know, I'm not saying that Taylor Hall is a sub-replacement player. You know, I'm not saying that Taylor Hall is worse than, you know, every forward on the Pittsburgh Penguins. You know, I'm not taking uh, Teddy Bluger over him. But at the same time, I think that we need to accept the fact that Taylor Hall really sucked this year. And if you're going at him with any amount of money, uh, especially the amount of money that he would command in free agency, uh, you're taking on a huge risk uh, that even if he's not as bad as he was this year, if he even splits that difference between how good he was in 1819 and how good he was this year, you're still hugely overpaying him if you're giving him what I presume he would be worth. Uh, but I think it's a crummy situation kind of for everyone because if you're Taylor Hall, you know, obviously he wants stability. Anybody wants stability. You know, you're trying to get a long-term contract. You're trying to set up your future. Uh, but I mean, for Hall, you know, we talk about guys who had excellent contract years. You know, he's not one of them. He had maybe the worst contract year that I can remember in a long time. And any long-term deal that he gets is going to be tainted by that. You know, if he was a free agent in 2019, we'd be talking about 12 million bucks. You know, now, you know, you can envision a team kind of paying a little too much for him, but I, I would be very surprised if he kind of got to that height. But then there's also the whole, you know, people are kind of talking about, oh, like, you know, let's like get a one-year deal, score 80 points, score 90 points, and then cash out. Uh, but, I mean, you know, what happens if he's just as bad next year? Because if he's just as bad next year, he'll be looking at a lot less money on the long-term deal than if he settled this year. So, you know, I guess my, my general answer to your question would be I would be very wary of signing Taylor Hall to anything above $8 bucks on a long-term deal. And even then... I think that there's a huge amount of risk involved there that would make me just more likely than not just kind of turn around and, and focus on trading or developing my own players. You know, it, it, it almost feels like it's a situation where you're like, you're saying someone's going to get in for six or seven years at eight, eight or 9 million. And then if he's, if he ends up going back to what he can't could be, or at least what he's been in the past at different times, then everybody goes, oh, what a value contract. That was an amazing signing. And then if he ends up being what he was this year, it'll be this albatross of an $8 million contract for seven, you know, six, seven years that just is just hanging around there. It feels like that's kind of what you know, we're going to look at it being one thing or the other at that yeah. point. No, like, cause I, I mean, I just, I can't remember a time when a player of his pedigree who was up for unrestricted free agency went from being an elite player to being sub replacement over the course of one season and then was up for unrestricted free agency right afterwards. Like it's just, you know, it, it it's not often that a guy with Taylor's Taylor, I almost called him Taylor Swift with Taylor Hall's <laughs> pedigree is up as a free agent. 
let alone that he goes up as a free agent with this amount of uncertainty surrounding him. So, yeah. you know, God knows. It'll be it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I can't imagine that this is going to be the best situation for for Taylor Hall. You know, look, if you wanted to sign a one-year contract and play with Sidney Crosby, I wouldn't say no, but uh, <laughs> I feel like more more likely than not some team like Colorado will swing in and give him like a 9 million dollar deal or over however many years and Maybe they'll look smart. Maybe they'll look dumb. But I feel like it just shows how much uncertainty there is and how players perform and how dangerous it is to just kind of make assumptions based on a player's reputation that they're going to play to a certain caliber. Right. Um, one other rumor I want to ask you about, because this one's been circulating and I don't know how much truth there is to it, but there's these, uh, there's been the rumor circulating that the Panthers might trade Alexander Barkov. And... <laughs> So they might and trade I, Alexander Barkov. Huh? That is, that is, that, 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 sorry, that the Panthers might trade Barkov? That, it's been a rumor. I don't know how much truth there is to it. Oh, right, um, because, they, because they're like blowing up the team, right? That they, right, they, right. That's what we've heard. Or that's what, that's what some people are saying. So I, I want a right. two-part question. One, yeah. does that make any sense at all? And two, if you were another team and the Panthers were actually going to do it, I mean – would there be a price you wouldn't pay to get Barkov? I mean, other than obviously like Connor McDavid or something, but I I mean, just that whole thing. Yeah. I obviously, yeah, there's a lot to Barkov's a really interesting player. There's a lot going on with Barkov because, you know, God, I don't even know which direction to take this. I guess the the first thing I would say is that if you're the Panthers trading Barkov would be really stupid, not even just kind of because of the quality of player he is, but also because he had a real bad season by his standards this year. Uh, Like if you kind of look at the the curve of his kind of career arc, you know, he was superb in 1819 and he really just was not that great this year. He had an off season by his standards, especially on the defensive side of the puck. Uh, and but I think his offense also took a pretty big dip as far as his even strength performance. So if you're the Panthers right now, it would be the absolute stupidest time to trade Barkov. Uh, at the same time, with kind of roles reversed, you know, if I'm a team, like, you know, let's say Montreal, like one of those teams that's been consistently struggling to get a uh, number one center, you know, Barkov is a guy that I would definitely target. But I, I will say, and I guess this is where you know my take gets a little bit more controversial, is. I think that they have to be realistic about his skill set and abilities because uh, kind of on the same note as Seth Jones, and I think I kind of hinted at it before, uh, I think Barkov's defensive play has been overrated by a long shot for the past three years. And I think people have kind of built him up to be this genius, brilliant, two-way, selkie beast that he really was for one year there in sixteen seventeen and hasn't been since. So like last year he was one of the best centers in the NHL. Like he was in the 99th percentile in forwards in wins above replacement. He was nuts, but he was nuts offensively and on the power play. I think his defensive play has actually been average to below average, uh, especially this season, but for the past three years. So if you're a team who's trading for Barkov, I think, that it's it's easy for people to get uh, enamored by his his nice takeaway numbers. Uh, you know, he he obviously has a lot of highlights where he you know strips the puck off guys and and makes them look stupid. But what you'd be acquiring in Barkov is a elite offensive player, and elite offensive centers are worth a hell of a lot. Uh, but as long as they were kind of willing to understand that this is not a guy that they are acquiring so that he can be, you know you know, late career Steve Eiserman or, you know, a guy who's going to make their penalty kill, you know, a lot better. Like he's not prime Jonathan Taves in that respect. He's just a ridiculously creative and skilled and productive offensive player. And that's what you're getting from him. So, I mean, if the Panthers are stupid enough to trade him when his value is, is probably at its lowest, then they can go right ahead. I don't think that that's a very smart move on their part. Uh, But at the same time, I think that I have more complicated, views on Alex Barkov than, than a couple of people might. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been, it's been awesome. Uh, do you want to ask other than seeing you on Twitter at jfreshhockey? hockey, how do people get more of, of your insights, more of what you're, you're talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, right now Twitter is kind of my main area. I mean, especially in this, uh, 
in this quarantine. It's where I'm spending way too much of my time. So you can definitely see plenty of posts from me on there. Uh, I'm, I'm moving right now. I'm in the process of, uh, of putting a site together where all of my visualizations would be available to, uh, to Patreon subscribers. So you'd be able to check everything out there. Um, in the meantime, you can subscribe to me on Patreon. You do get access to uh, a certain number of visualizations uh, that I just have as kind of being available, not on the site right now, including a uh, lineup creator, like a roster creator uh, that uses wins above replacement uh, and allows you to basically create a lineup either from this season or from any season since 2007-08. Uh, and it kind of shows you what the wins above replacement of each player based on the role that you've given them in the lineup. Uh, and then kind of projects how many points in the standings that team would get. So, you know, just kind of a fun time waster, uh, as well as a way for you to kind of you pick a goalie and then you can uh, see where they've ranked in the NHL among starters in goals saved above expected over the course of their careers in each season in the regular season of playoffs, which I think is just kind of a, a fun way to visualize just how much of a crapshoot goaltending is and how <laughs> certain goaltenders might be overrated at certain points of their careers, not to call out Mark andre Fleury too much here. But uh, so those are available right now if you subscribe. Otherwise, check me out on Twitter at JFreshHockey. Uh, I'm still in the midst of posting the hashtag 31 days, 31 teams rundown where every day I take a look at a different team in the NHL. Just posted uh, Philadelphia today. Got some pretty unhappy replies for my assessment <laughs> of Kevin Hayes, but nonetheless. Uh, well, they love yeah, Kevin Hayes. Uh, just check me out. Oh yeah, so check me out on there, and you'll be able to see uh, you'll be able to see anything that I have in the future. Uh, I'll post it on there first. Well, well, thank you very much for your time today, Jay Fresh, and uh, and have a good one. Stay safe out there. Yeah, you too. This has been the Shoot Once Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Shoot Once Pod.